Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now it's time to listen to this week's message. If you didn't receive a message card when you came in, you can raise your hand right quick and uh, one of the ushers will serve you. We are in our final week of Missions March. How many of you have been blessed by the, the teaching and the reading of God's Word? The, the, really, God has spoken in unique ways, I feel like, this year. But how many of you have been just really blessed as God has spoken to your heart over the last few weeks? Anybody just show a hands? I know I'm first and foremost in that. And, uh, you know, I pray today I can communicate the message in a way. Today is much more a message than a sermon um, to, to, to communicate in the way that my heart, in the way that I feel that God has communicated to me. But I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And of course, you can follow along in version app as well if you want to do so on your phone. Uh, we're so excited to start our three-day fast today. And uh, many of you, uh, you've probably already begun. And if you're a big breakfast eater, you're already, your gut's already telling you that we've begun our fast. But we are in a, a three-day fast that we're calling our church to corporately over the next three days, today and tomorrow and Tuesday. And I'm going to mention more and speak more of that in just a few moments. First Corinthians chapter 13, I want to read three verses of Scripture, just three verses to give our attention to this morning. This was the Apostle Paul, just some context first, written a letter. This is actually his second letter. 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians really being third. We know this by reading 1 Corinthians, that Paul has already had correspondence with the Corinthian church. And so now he is responding back to many of the questions and issues. And this was written to a Jesus community in the city of Corinth. Now, Corinth was a, a really unique city. It was a very ecstatic city. We could call it a, a cultural center. And it was a wild city, a very wild city. I, I'm not sure you would want to raise a young family Sarah, in the midst of Corinth. It was a, a bombastic, really wild city. They had bizarre parties. Corinth was known for incredible, bizarre festivals. And um, they had crazy behavior, particularly sexually, major, 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 weird, weird sexually uh, behavior. And yet still, in this city, which it didn't seem like would be fertile for a Jesus community, there is a Jesus community thriving. Why? Because the scripture says, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. God's grace abounds in the midst of broken, sinful areas. And so the church is now growing, and the church is what uh, we could say they're experiencing what we would call growing pains. And there is a love crisis on hand, a love crisis. And so Paul will put pen to paper, and he will begin to write. Now, if you're in this room today and you're not familiar with Christianity or familiar with the Scriptures too much, this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, for us Christians is this or at least we think it is, this beautiful, poetic, um, soft, cushioned, we could imagine it as a uh, Victorian um, dressed or Victorian decorated elegant room, right? In fact, out of one, of five, one, out, one out of every five Christians you meet in America, you ask them what their favorite passage is, they say 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? It's the love chapter. It's this beautiful, poetic language, and yet, today, as we look at it, you might be in shock and awe to discover this morning the actual context of what's being said. Because 1 Corinthians 13 is not really as poetic and as beautiful and as nice and as kind as you and I tend to think it is. So, it might be Paul's actually most bombastic work in all of his 13 epistles. It's pretty crazy when you really read in context. And so just prepare yourself, buckle up your seatbelts, and let's just begin to read. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning of verse 1. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. You see that? That has calligraphy written all over it. And that's Krista Drummond in a couple of words. You know what I'm saying right there. I mean, that's just calligraphy. That's, that's Bible journaling if you've ever heard it, right? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. He says, but I have not love. Notice that, have not love. He said, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers, I mean, listen to the contrast here. And I understand all mysteries and understand all knowledge. And if I have all faith, you, you get the point here. And faith so much as to remove mountains, he said, but I have not love. I am nothing. 
If I give away all I have, overly generous, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, I'm burned at the stake, but have not love, he says, I gain nothing. Now, what I want to do for the moments we have together is we do our best to make sense of those three verses. And I do believe, and I want you to hear me from the outset, that God's illogical love changes our very existence. That God's illogical love seen in Jesus Christ changes how we process. It changes how we think. It changes how we contemplate. It changes what we value. God's ridiculous love. That is to say that our existence as believers can be shaped and defined and identified by God's crazy, illogical Love. I want to title this message today, Love Has Us. Would you say that with me? Love has us. Let's pray. Father, I pray in Jesus' mighty name for the few moments we have together that your love indeed would be shed abroad in our hearts again. That God, we would understand the mission you have for us, not just in this month, but every day of our lives. The ethos and the fuel of that mission is your agape, it's your love. Thank you for your grace and your love. You've shown the kindness you've shown in Jesus Christ. I thank you that you've gathered us together under that name today. And I pray you would speak in these moments, transform. I pray that the knowledge would seep so deep, God, that there would be a deep trust. And that the love of God poured out in our hearts would be not so much today an exchange of information, but an impartation. That, Lord, we would leave this room changed. We give you praise for this in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Now, how many of you, just by show of hands, well, you maybe not want to show your hand at this question, but how many of you, you are what we call multifaceted or a multi-gifted person, right? Like you're a multifaceted person, like you're good at a lot of things, right? And you don't have to be shame, you know, shameful to raise your hand, but, but you're multifaceted, man. You, you're just kind of well-rounded. They would put you in the terms of a a renaissance man, right? Like Josh, Paul, like you play multiple instruments, right? So like there's no way, like he's multifaceted, right? Multi-gifted individual, right? You look at, look at Nathan here, man. He's, he's a whole lot more gifted in the area of mechanics than I ever dreamed of being, all right? And automobiles and, and Tim, right? You're a handyman, multifaceted. Like you got multi-gifts. You're well-rounded. You have, and let's just be honest, for those people that are multi-gifted, you could have chosen multiple career paths, right? You could have made like millions of dollars doing this, but you could have made you know, hundreds of dollars doing this or hundreds of thousands of dollars. These are multi-gifted people. Now, those people in the room that are multi-gifted, you know you're gifted, but, but you also know that you're annoying to have a conversation with, right? You know this, right? You multifaceted people, you're extremely annoying to talk to, all right? When, when people have a conversation with you, you know this, right? It's annoying. You don't, you don't mean to be annoying, or at least maybe I think you don't mean to be annoying. Maybe you do mean to be annoying. I don't know if that's the case. Then God have mercy on your soul. But, but you, you don't mean to be annoying. It's just that when everyone else is sharing a story, you don't mean to, but you actually have done that only twice as good. Okay, like you've done it multiple times and, and your story beats their story every single time. Like, like Casey Duck, right? You saw Casey Duck, like Casey Duck, right? I mean, think about Casey Duck. Not only does he have a great jawline and hairline and he's fairly attractive, but when he comes up on stage, he can play every single instrument, if you think about it. I mean, he can get up here on the keyboard, he can play along, he can go over to drums, he can play bass, he can play electric guitar. He's pretty good at sports, although he didn't play sports. I've watched him catch the football before when we played flag football on a Sunday afternoon. He's just a multi-gifted person. And just sometimes, if you want to have a conversation with Casey about music, it's just annoying. People that are multi-gifted, you're just, you're just annoying to have a conversation with sometimes. Let's just be honest. You know what a good conversation is, right? You know what it is, right? It's, it, here's a good conversation. If there's four people, a good conversation is where all of the four individuals all have one moment where they get in the sunshine, okay? A good conversation is where at some point, one of them says, you know what? I've done this, and everybody else looks over at him and goes, Wow, that's amazing. You know what I'm saying? One moment in the sun, right? And then it's like, you know, I went to Paris this summer. And everybody's like, wow. And then there's that one person that's like, really? I lived in Paris for three years. Oh, yeah, you're my best friend. You know what I'm saying? It's like, hey, I'm getting really good at tennis. I've been taking lessons. And you guys want to go play tennis? And they're like, yeah, I actually played college tennis. Yeah, Stanford, you know, three years, full ride, you know? It's like, you don't want to be around that. They're annoying to be around. Multi-gifted, multi-faceted people. 
Now, how many people in the room, you're, you're one-thingers. I call you one-thingers. You're just gifted at one thing, and you have no shame whatsoever about it, all right? Just the one-thingers. Any one-thingers? Okay. You're just gifted at one single thing, which makes it a little easier to focus, right? Right? You don't have to do many things. You just do one thing well, and, and you know what? That one thing, you're good at that one thing. You're a great person to hang out with, by the way. <laughs> the one-thingers are awesome because they're so easily impressed by everything. You know what I'm saying? You get in a conversation with the one-thingers, and you're like, you know, I know how to divide. And you're like, what? How do you do division? You know what I'm saying? They're like, how did you learn to do that? You know, just, just totally easily impressed, the one-thingers. It's like, I ride a bicycle a mile a day, and you're like, what? That is insane. A, a mile? Yeah, are you saying, you know, the one-thingers, great to have conversation with, right? It's like, I went to Paris, and I'm like, wow, where is that? I'm not good at geography, right? I'm just good at, good at doing whatever I do, you know? It's like, the one-thingers, they're easy to talk to. They're easy to talk to. Well, I want to tell you it. 18 years of age, I got a focus to only want to learn one thing. At 18 years of age, God called me to be a pastor, and I was intended to be a pediatric neurologist. I actually wanted to be a neurosurgeon. Ben Carson was my childhood hero, and so I had done many campus tours, and I had just settled that I was going to go to UTK in my senior year. They have a program where you can start your first year of med school. And so your eight years become seven years. So your residency becomes a little shorter. And by this point, of course, I would be probably operating on brains by this point. But, but as I was gearing up for the, the, the graduation ceremony, it began in my bedroom one night where God conditioned and constrained my heart for what we call vocational ministry. And then it began with a dream. And then God began to confirm that and change my entire you know, existence, and God does that. He put a Holy, Holy Spirit-shaped grenade. Have you ever had one of those fall in your lap? And he put that in my lap one night, and my whole, my whole career changed. And um, i got to be honest with you. For my first few years of Christian ministry, I was around a lot of good preachers. I was. In fact, some of the best preachers. But I wasn't around the best of pastors until the third place, of, third different context or church that I served. And so I began to get a, 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 a become mesmerized by good pastors. When I say pastors, I'm not talking about preachers. I've been around good preachers. I began to be mesmerized by good shepherds. I began to watch their every move. I moved to Cleveland, Tennessee, and I served under what I still believe to this day is probably one of the greatest shepherds. His name is Mitch Maloney. He's still a good friend, still my pastor. I still talk to him, but he is a phenomenal, phenomenal shepherd. Uh, what I mean by that is he is all about caring for sheep. To his fault, his mercy streak is a mile wide. And so I began to watch his every move. I remember particularly one time we were in a staff meeting with, you know, a church of about 15, 1,600 people. You got a staff that are in a staff meeting of about 15 people. And I got a text saying from my dad, would you call me? My mom was in Knoxville at the time. I was in Cleveland, Tennessee. And so I stepped out of the, the staff meeting and I called and, and my mom was having another heart issue. My mom had aortic valve replacement with an aortic aneurysm many years back. And so she had to go back to the hospital. They rushed her to the hospital, and I walked back in, and, and, and Pastor Mitch was asking me why you know, I had to be dismissed. And I told him, I said, if you know, we can just pray. Uh, it was just the start of, of, of staff meeting. He said, if we can just pray for my mom as she's going in now to the hospital. And he said, what's going on? And immediately he dismissed the, himself and me from the staff meeting. He left the staff meeting altogether, and he threw me in his car, much to my, I, I really didn't even know what was taking place, and he got and he drove to Knoxville. And we pulled into the hospital right there where my mother was at. And now he wasn't intending to make a decision that had a lasting impression on my life, but it was a lasting impression on my life. It was a pastor. My wife, in the very much similar fashion, had a cousin who died of epilepsy at the age of 30. She had epileptic seizures, and she finally swallowed her tongue and, and died one day. And she was a friend of Pastor Mitch. And before we even attended that church or we're on staff at that church. One Sunday morning, he was on the front row and he got up to preach. And as soon as he did, one of his armor bearers came up and told him that Carrie had just passed away. So he gave the mic to the associate pastor and he said, I'm sorry, with all due respect, congregation, I'm going to have to leave you and I'm going to go be with my friend as she's passing into eternity. And she left. That, that, didn't, that wasn't a decision that he made that was just outright to try to figure out how to define love for the people around him, but it became a defining moment. For the people around him. I have another pastor who is in Chattanooga right now. He pastors North Chattanooga. The ministry center. The church where I was born again. His name is Jimmy Talley. 
Jimmy Talley pastored a church called Graceville Church of God for many, many years. He grew it in a very rural area from about 50 people to about 500 plus people. And they were doing weekly ministry to the down and outers in their community. He had one young boy who was 16 years old whose parents were unable to take him to, to youth camp. Youth camp is Monday through Friday. You've got to stay on the grounds in Signal Mountain. And the pastor, the senior pastor said, I'm taking one week out of my time. And he took that 16-year-old who was just a member of his church and he wheeled him around youth camp for five days straight. He slept with him in his dorm. And he didn't make that decision to try to make a lasting impression on my wife. But my wife, who's, her youth pastor was Jimmy Talley, that deeply, deeply impacted her life. At a young age, in a young in ministry, I began to think, you know what? A pastor is not one who just preaches. You know what? A pastor is not one who just does a series condition or a series, you know, a message series and grow. I'll never forget that he wasn't, Mitch at that time, trying to make a defining moment for me, but it was a moment I took a snapshot of my mind and I said, you know, that's what a pastor is. A pastor's not just a preacher. Pastor's not just a series creator. Pastor's not just a speaker. A pastor helps people because he loves God. And a pastor loves what God loves, and what God loves is people. That you do whatever it takes to help people. You do whatever it takes to love people. It gets messy sometimes. Yes, it does. You have to risk your reputation sometimes. People are going to misunderstand you sometimes to reach out with the love of Jesus Christ. But that's what a pastor does. That's what someone does to extend the love of Jesus it's safe to say as we look at this passage today in 1 Corinthians 13, the whole church in Corinth had lost sight of what this picture of love really is. They've lost sight of it. They're not loving well. There's a love crisis in Corinth. You can conclude, based on my studies, that, uh, based on my studies, I would conclude that they were having great services, great worship services. They were having amazing services, right? Meaning their singing and their sermonizing was as good as it had ever been. But that was the extent of their mission. Missions march. That was the extent of their evangelism, just good services. That was the extent of their passion. They had become good at doing the church, but they had lost sight of being the church. And of course, when you don't love well, you don't live well, because living well is loving well. You know this, right? You don't love well, you don't live well. Living is loving. And so if you want the ingredients to living full, love full. Love with a full heart. So Paul has to address in this letter perhaps what is the single greatest, most important subject in human history. And that is the essence or the ethos of the Christian community. That is love. Love. And so as we approach 1 Corinthians 13, like I mentioned a few moments ago, so many times we approach it with these preconceived notions as followers of Jesus that this passage is a beautiful, you know, cushion, fabric, beautiful, ornate calligraphy or, or beautiful Victorian home. But 1 Corinthians 13 is anything but that. She said, if I speak in the tongues of angels, and we think that's beautiful, but that's actually a dig. That's Paul taking off the gloves and punching them in the face. He's taking shots at the community and shots at the culture, and I want to prove it to you over the next few moments. Let's read verse by verse again. I'm preaching to you a textual message today. Verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Now, that doesn't resonate in our modern culture in Atlanta, does it? I mean, it really doesn't. But boy, did it hit home to the Corinthian Christians. Because in Corinth, I wouldn't know this, you wouldn't know this unless you study, they revered languages. Like the greatest pickup line you could use if you were a guy to pick up a hot girl is to say, oh, by the way, I speak seven languages. <laughs> you know? Like they revere languages, you know? Even the beautiful language called French, you know? They, they loved and esteemed languages. And Paul knows that. He knows that in Corinth. So he says, I don't care if you know all the languages. You understand me? I don't care if you know the angels, secret angels, secret language with the angels, and you know, angology, and, and you, you're able to communicate and mediate with the, 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 the language of angels. He says, you know what? If you don't have love, you're a noisy gong, or you're a clanging cymbal. Now, if I wanted to take a dig at you today, I wouldn't say, you know, Trent, you're such a noisy gong. He, that wouldn't bother Trent one single bit, you know. He's like, you need some more sleep, Pastor. You know, you need to stop taking medicine, okay. Like, that wouldn't make sense to him. Trent, you're just a, a noisy gong to me. Pastor Chad, you're just, you're a clanging cymbal to me today. Wouldn't make sense. Would have no impact. But they know what the noisy gong is. You know what it was? In Corinth, it was a reference 
to this big bronze metal instrument that was used in the theater because it was entertainment culture to project the volume of play actors. So you know what Paul is saying? Let's just follow it real quick. If you don't have love, your Christian community is no different than the theater. It's just theatrics. I don't care what you think you do. I don't care what songs you sing. I don't care how much you lift your hands. I don't care what's going on. If you don't have love, you are a theater. What you're doing is just theatrics. It's just going through the motions. Furthermore, if you don't have love, you are a clanging symbol. Now listen, the largest cult in the known world was in the city of Corinth. And guess what that large cult did to worship and cultic worship? They got huge symbols and made loud, horrendous, horrible noises. They just beat symbols together. In other words, this is cult worship. So it's like, Paul, dude, you are mean. Could you imagine being in Corinth? It's like, Paul, hold on a little bit here, man. Just back up. He says, if you don't have love, you're no different than the theater and your church worship is the worship of a cult. That's what he says. Excuse me, Paul? It gets worse. We're going to go three levels. Now let's go level two. He just gets harder and harder. The punches come stronger and stronger. Verse 2, he goes on, and he says, and if I have prophetic powers, I mean, this is like superhero talk, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it would be like me coming here and saying, if I put on a cape, you know, and I get out of the phone booth and I start flying through the air, you know, it's like Clark Kent kind of stuff. This is crazy. Like, when else does Paul talk like this? You've got to understand what Paul's doing. That's what I want you to get, feel what he's doing. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, not some, all, uh, every mystery of the gospel, I understand it all. And I have all knowledge. Oh, we're really big about that in Western world, right? We're intellectually bent. If I have all knowledge and if I have all faith, Paul, you like the word all? All means all and all the, all the means, right? In all faith, he says, in faith so much as to remove mountains. I see you move. You move the mountain. You're right. We just sang it. To remove all mountains. But he said, but have not love. I am, which is a term of identity. Whoa, he just took a shot at your identity. I am nothing. Not I have. Not I possess. I am nothing. Now, at this point, if your son, teenage son or daughter came to you and started with this kind of language, you'd be like, hold on, time out. Stop the drama. You're so much like your dad. You know what I'm saying? It's like, come on, drama queen. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is drama. You, the, the, the power of contrast is so dramatic here, it has to garner our attention. You cannot read verse 2 and go to verse 3 and act like it's no big deal. I mean, do you see what he's trying to do here? Like, he's garnering our attention. It's like little over the top, son. You know, like, you know... We get it. We get the point. It's so dramatic. He says, I am nothing. That means identity. I don't know. Maybe you're, maybe you're like me. You have to read these passages and think, you know what? I believe Paul's trying to make a point, and I think that point's love. You know, I think, I think it might be love. The point is not cults. The point is not theater. The point is not languages. The point is not angels. The point is not mysteries. The point is not knowledge. The point is not moving stone mountain. Let's just put it. Kennesaw Mountain, you pick your mountain choice, whatever one you want. That's not the point. He is contrasting the most radical, intense Lord's language to say, look how important love is to God. It's this important. If you don't have love and yet you have all these things, you've lost your distinction and you've lost your uniqueness and you've lost your identity as a believer. Whoa. We got to breathe. Are you ready? Let's go to level three. It gets way worse. And if I give away all I have, Paul, I think we're, he likes the word all, doesn't he? All, 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 total, all, complete. If I give away all I have, notice that, complete, utter generosity. Now, has anyone in this room ever given everything you have away? Like everything, like clothes on your back. Now, that would be awkward right when you did that, you know? Like everything. That's pretty radical, is it not? Folks, I guess to me, when we grow up in American Christianity, we're, we're taught subjectively or subconsciously to read Scripture from this kind of pious distance. But if you don't read it piously, but you'll read it engagingly, if I give away everything I have, that's radical. 
That's, that's complete generosity. That's total generosity. And then he takes it to martyrdom. But if I deliver my body to be burned, Paul's, Paul is divinely inspired. Look how God sets this up. Now, is there any way to die for Jesus worse than being burned? You know what I'm saying? I'd rather be put in a freezer than being burned for Jesus. He, he picks the highest one, which is, by the way, what was happening in, in Nero when he was burning Christians to light the streets of Rome. Nero was burning Christians. And so he says, if I give up my body to be burned, notice that, I gain nothing. Now, I don't mean to make light of this. Really, I don't. But Paul is on a tangent, isn't he? Time out, Paul. Slow up a bit. He's trying to drive home a point. What is it? If I give away everything, that is to say total generosity, and if I die by fire, if I give my life for Jesus by fire, but I don't have love, he ends by saying I've gained nothing. Now, are you like me? Do you read portions of Scripture like this and you think to yourself, like, well, he can't totally mean that fully. No, he means exactly what he writes because he's not exaggerating because this is the, cano- the, the canonized Scripture. This is God's word to us. He means exactly what he says, which is to say, church, you can literally, come on, America, have all knowledge. You can have all faith. You can have all wisdom, every bit of wisdom. You can give away everything you own. You can die by being burned at the stake, but if it's not anchored and oriented in around the loving relationship with God and the love that's found in Jesus Christ, you are a play actor. You have no distinction. You have no definition. Your life is empty. You are not defined by anything other than this empty cultic worship and your life at the end of it is bankrupt. You profit nothing. Excuse me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the point. This is how passionate God is about Jesus followers being all about love. Focused on love. Now I read this I'll just be honest with you, speak for myself. I read this and I think to myself, why do we, why do we have such a hard time hanging our hats on love? Why do we miss this in the church? Right? Why do we miss this? Like, maybe it's just me, but let me just give you an example for myself. For instance, why is it so hard to hang my hat on love? Like, you know what I mean? For instance, people tell me all the time, I'm a pastor, right? They tell me all the time, they're like, I love Jesus. And I'm like, oh, that's good, man. That's great. You love Jesus. That's cool. That's awesome. But if you come to me and you're like, hey, um, I've done a study on the book of Revelation for the last 14 years, and I've just figured out every single beast and know every part in the time frame. I'm like, what? Like, are you serious? You know it all? What'd you say again? I love Jesus. Oh, that's good. Okay, cool. You, you love Jesus. That's good. Yeah. But you see, that's amazing. Someone comes to me and they're like, hey, I love Jesus. Oh, that's good. Hey. Um, I raised the dead last week in Africa. You did what? I raised the dead in Africa. We we talk about it in America, right? Like raising the dead. Like, you raised, are you serious? Yeah, I prayed for him. He was like dead, and then he wasn't dead anymore. You know, it's like, it was, I laid hands on him, and he got up. Excuse me, what'd you say? I loved you. Oh, that's good. You are awesome, dude. Like, how in the world did you do? What'd you say? Oh, you love Jesus. That's good. What did you just say? You gave away all that you had in Africa? Like you sold everything in America and went to how in the world? What'd you say again? Oh, I love Jesus. That's cool. That's cool. You love Jesus. You, you are amazing, dude. Is that just me? We don't hang our hats on love. We hang our hats on human accolades. We don't hang our hats on the love of God being resident in hearts. We hang our hats on the ministry we do for Jesus after his love has changed us. I don't know about you, but that's at least the way it is for me. I think it's our human nature. For instance, what part of this scripture, these three verses, is the hard part? What's the hard part? Is it having love? No. Like, do you have love? Like, what do you mean have love? Like, I just have it. Like, what do you mean have it? Like, I I have it. (laughs) What do you mean have it? Like, I don't know. I just have it. (laughs) Like, what's the hard part of the scripture? It's not having love. What's the hard part of the scripture? Gaining all knowledge, understanding all mysteries, applying your mind, having faith to move Stone Mountain. Those are efforts. Those are deeds. Those are accolades. Those are work. And yet, where is the emphasis again? On nothing humans can do but the love of God. Love. Having love. Love. And Paul warns these Corinthians who, who are getting really good at doing church. They're amazing at doing church. They're really good at mission trips. They're really good at giving lots, lums, some, some money. 
No, no doubt, no doubt Corinth, Corinth is experiencing mayhem. They've got uh, envy and factions and jealousy and fits of rage and all kinds of communication issues. They've got major sexual issues going on. But listen, their services are still pretty stellar. Sundays are hopping. And Paul writes these most compelling verses where he puts all of the focus and all of the spotlight on love. See, the problem is in our culture, we define love differently, right? Than what the Bible does, than the ancient scriptures. When scripture says love, it's not how we think about love. So we need to talk about that love. In our modern vernacular, we think of love altogether different. We think of love as like affinity. We think of love as passion. We think of love as flirting. We think of love as sexy. We think of love as attraction. We think of love as butterflies. Like, oh my God, he talked to me in the lobby. Like, I met my husband this morning at church. We talked. He said hello. You know, he greeted me at the door. Like, that's what we think of love. It's all about love. People say, well, the church should be all about love. Yeah, baby, it is all about love. Yes, yeah, you know. But you're like, that's not what we're talking about when we love. This love needs to be defined. If we're going to say, Paul, you're saying that the whole church got to be about love, we need to find love, right? If we don't, then we just leave the room with no misunderstanding about what it is we're supposed to put emphasis on. So let's define the love. Well, Craig, do you want to do that for us? No, let's just let Scripture do it. And he gives a clear definition of what love is, all right? This is a love that needs to be defined. How do we define love? A love is unique to our faith. Love is unique to our God. It's not unique to our culture. It's unique to the journey of God through the Old Testament. It needs to definition. So let's go to 1 John 4 and 10. Here is the definition. In this is love. Notice this. In this is love. In this is love. He, which is to say, here's my definition for love. Not that we have loved God. Paul's, when's the last time you heard a definition, really? The definition, very familiar or very peculiar when you, thought, you think about how unorthodox John defines love. When was the last time you saw a definition that before in its effort to define something, it told you right off the bat what it's not? Think about that. When's the last time you heard a definition that it start before it attempts to explain to you what it is, it tells you what it, in other words, divinely inspired by John, or John inspired by the Spirit to express the definition of love by starting with what it is not. Why? John says, you want to know what love is? Well, first, let me tell you what it's not. It's not you. It's not yours. You're not the originator. It's not yours. You don't possess it. It's not from you. It's for you. And you can benefit from this love, but it's not from you. It's not that you love God. It's not that you love God. It's not that you love God. You didn't even know God existed. You didn't even have a desire for God. You were dead in sins and trespasses. You couldn't care less. You were indifferent about God. You were indifferent about the gospel. It's not that you love God. Now, listen, church, that's radical. You say, why is that radical? Because a lot of Christians try to orient their life around the love of God. But when they say love of God, they're not talking or meaning the love that God has for them. They're talking about the love they have for God. They're putting their emphasis on the love they have for him. But John defines love as not that you love God. Don't make that your focus. Now that you love God, Corinth, you're making that the focus. But God loved you before you even loved God. So why are you making the premium, the focus, and the emphasis? That which you never did before he did it in your life first. You can't put the focus on something you didn't initiate. You can't put the focus on something you didn't originate. You can't put the focus on something that you and your volition decided to do. It's the love of God for you. You can't focus on something you never did until something else happened. So he says, it's not that you love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is a snapshot, church, of God love. This is a snapshot of divine love. This is a snapshot of agape love. It's love that's relentless. It's love that's unconditional. It needs no reciprocation. It's the term agape. It's the term agape. I want to show you this slide. It's a perfect illustration of 1, Corinthians, 1 John 4 and 10. It's not God is loving, holy, just, sovereign, merciful, wrathful. It's God is love. He's holy, holy. God's very essence is love. And it's expressed through his ruling. His justice is expressed through his love. His wrath is expressed through his love. His grace is expressed through his love. His mercy is expressed through his love. God is love. That is to say, all that God is, is wrapped up in love. That even creation comes from God's love. 1 John 4 and 10. Now listen to me. If your car runs on gasoline, the church runs on agape. 
That is to say, agape is the gasoline of the global Jesus community that we are a part of. Listen to me, church. Without agape, we will literally putter to a stop and we'll pull off the side of the road of the mission of God and we will no longer have fire. Our engine no longer works. You want to talk about March missions? There is no mission of God without the love of God and his church. You do not have fuel to move forward without agape. Agape love, divine love. It's the most basic expression of the Christian gospel. Agape. And Paul is making this abundantly, almost embarrassingly clear. Look at 1, Corinthians, 1 John 4 and 10 again. He says, not that we love God, but that he loved us. That means it's our very essence. It's the basic expression. Now, he covered all the bases of Christian accolades and accomplishments, has he not? Did he cover them all? The ones that we talk that are like important in the church, he covered every single one of them, right? Like languages, we, we love them. Spiritual gifts, we love them. Angels, faith, mysteries, knowledge, total generosity, burn at the stake, become a martyr. And if not all of those are out of a loving relationship with God, you're a play actor, your worship is as hollow as a cult, you have no definition and identity, and your life is spiritually bankrupt. If you have not love. That's how imperative agape is. Now, how do you make agape the center of your everyday, ordinary life? You're sitting in your chair today and you're saying, Pastor Craig, well, how do I make Monday? Tomorrow's a Monday. How do I make agape be the center of my Monday? Which is to say, where are the ingredients for agape? Well, 1 Corinthians 13, we don't have time to read it. Go read it this afternoon. He says, love is patient, love is kind, does not keep record of you. You know what that is? All he's saying is everything that's after the word is is just the essence of Jesus. That's all it is. Love is Jesus. And then he des describes for you what Jesus is. All the ingredients for love is Jesus. But, but, but where are the ingredients? People say, well, Craig, how do I access love? You don't. It accessed you. <laughs> it already grabbed a hold of you. You don't access it. It accessed you. It grabbed a hold of your heart. Jesus said the kingdom of God is at, at Hand, it's all around you. It's right here. The kingdom of God is around you. The kingdom of God is already at hand, which is to say, how do I have it? Jesus made it readily available for all who would simply repent, trust, believe, lean into this love. You have this love, church, but make no mistake about it. Love has us. Love has us. Love has us. Why is it that when someone with a deep life with God and a deep understanding of the love of God, when they speak truth, you feel like it's more impartation than information because it is, because it's love, agape love, the love of God. And here's what happens. Once you get this agape love church, and this is what so messed me up last week. I, I couldn't do anything but preach this message this week. I was so jacked up listening to people in our community in the baptistry talking about the love of God and how they felt like this is a family. And me as a pastor, it's like everything within me wants to take as many laps as I can around 92. I just want to run until I can't run anymore because what happens when a community begins to focus on the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, it begins to seep down in your heart and seep down in your mind. And when it begins to seep in your mind and seep down in your heart, then what happens is it starts by God's desire design before long God's design is that you get involved in a community where everyone else is leaning into this love and when you find a community where everyone's leaning into this love it begins to dictate conversation it messes up your family it messes up your life it messes up your pursuit it messes up your career it begins to be the topic of conversation you begin to sing songs about the love of God it begins to challenge your value system who gets the prominence who gets the recognition who gets to be up front why when the love of God begins to change a community and Paul says I am nothing and I gain nothing without this agape he says, I can have all faith, faith to move mountains. Whose teaching does that sound like, church? Whose teaching does that remind you of? Jesus's. I want to show you something that shocking all of me this week, made my, floor, my, my jaw hit the floor. Remember when Jesus said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you'll say to a mountain, be thou removed and be cast into the sea. You remember that? Boy, it's just like human nature to take a passage like that and think that it's actually about moving mountains. To think that that passage is about the strength of your faith. You all know faith, by the way, is never about faith, right? The moment you make faith about faith, it's actually not faith anymore. 
And we've made that about the strength of our faith. Faith only has power in that it has trust in the object. My faith has power because it's in Jesus Christ, the trust in Jesus Faith and faith is new age. That's what we find on TV. That's cultish in nature. Faith is trust in in Jesus, and it's only valid based upon what you have faith in. But he's indicting the Corinthians on, you have all this faith to move mountains, but yet you've missed what the faith is all about. I don't care about you moving mountains if you miss what the faith to move mountains is about. Do you know the context of Matthew 17, which is, if you have faith, the grain of mustard seed, you cast the mountains, you know what it is? Let's just look at it real quick. This is the context, because you can't take it out of context. Matthew chapter 17, this is what the Bible says, beginning uh, in verse, uh, and Jesus rebuked the demon and a man who was demon-possessed, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. The disciples had been unable to heal or cast out or exercise the demon, so Jesus cast it out of this man. And then the disciples said, why can we not cast it out? What is Jesus say he said because of your faith for truly I say to you if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed you will say to this mountain what in the world are you talking about you know what the disciples couldn't do they couldn't cast out the demon so Jesus teaches them after their inability to cast out the demon to help a fellow human being who is terrorized by demons this is not about a faith contest this is what we've done in the church it's a word of faith movement it's about who has the most faith the only reason faith is here is to cast out a demon so that God's love can touch a person's heart. When we talk about faith, it's about hurting humanity who needs the love of God. And when you got people at your work that they got mountains in front of their heart, it's where the visible love of God begins to open invisible hearts. It's not faith contest. It's not who has more faith. It's do I have enough faith that mountains can be removed from this person because I want them redeemed and reconciled back to me. That's where this faith is. You can move mountains all day long. But if you don't have faith, you've missed it. If you don't have love, you've missed the point. You've missed it. He says, I gain nothing if agape is not the focus. If the theme of life is not God's love for me, I gain nothing. I land here. I land here. I'm going to ask Casey if you'll just come. The rest of the band can come in a second. Jesus made a statement. He said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? If you gain the whole world and lose your soul, he said, you would profit nothing. You'd be so much in the red, you could never get back in the black. Talking of profits and losses. That is to say, you ready for this church? The profit of your existence is all connected to your focus on agape. I want to say that again. The profit of your existence on planet earth is all connected to your focus on agape. Other people will profit on your existence in earth if all of your focus is on God's agape love. That's how families are changed. That's how communities are changed. That's how relationships are changed. And I'm reading this this week, church, and I'm thinking, man, we need to be the love church. We need to major in minors, a major in the major things. I'm reading this, and what's a pastor's greatest fear? To play the church, do church, and forget to be the church? I'm not saying we're anywhere near this. I'm not saying 1 Corinthians 13 is our problem. But here's what I'm saying. I'd rather much have a preventative sermon than us ever missing the point and getting caught up in things that don't matter without love. Spiritual gifts without love, I'm nothing nothing it's interesting to me the same guy who says you can die for your faith and gain nothing is the same guy who said in Philippians 1 21 to die is gain I want you to see this verse now you've got to ask yourself the question how could Paul tell people in Corinth you can die at a stake and gain nothing but he says to the Philippians to die is gain that's a great question to ask right what's the difference how are you going to tell one group you can die at the stake and not gain you're going to tell another group to die is the game. The secret to Philippians 1.21 is in Philippians 1.23. Why is to live as Christ and to die is gain? Because in verse 23, he says, Corinthians, die for your faith. You gain nothing if you have not love. Philippians, to die is ultimate gain. What's the difference? Listen to Paul describe his internal emotional state. Paul right now in verse 23 is spilling his guts. This is a description of how he feels about our Jesus, church. 
He says, I'm hard-pressed. Go read the Greek language. That means he's, he's literally being torn apart. He's in deep emotional consternation. He don't know. He literally can't make up his mind is what he's saying. And he's in a prison, by the way, writing this letter. And he says, I, I'm hard-pressed between two paths. I got two paths in front of me. He, and there's a burning desire in my life. He says, I want to die so badly. Because I know when I die, I'll get to see my Jesus. I will see him. I'll be with the one I love. I'll be in the presence of Almighty God. And listen to me, Philippians. There's a burning desire in my life to see Jesus. That's why he said to die is ultimate gain. But listen, my desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But he said, you guys need me too. And for your benefit, I'll stay here as long as I need to stay here. I know you benefit. Verse 24, if I stay. So, Lord. If you want me to stay, it wouldn't be long, church. It would be a couple years and his head would be cut off. It wouldn't be long. It wouldn't be long as he's writing these words for him to be with his Savior. But don't miss this, church, because Paul is expression of a, a, a posture. He's expressing a state. He's expressing a space that he's found himself in. You say, Craig, what is that space? It's that spacious place David called the joy of his salvation. Paul has a resume, don't he? Studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a Jew of Jews. As concerning righteousness, a legalistic Jew. This is not comfortable language. I know my family certainly don't want me to talk like this at home. To die is ultimate gain. I know, I know, but this is the posture of Paul. And yet it, all the accomplishments and accolades and receiving and honor and worth that he had received. He said, you know what? All of that stuff don't matter to me. I've simply oriented my life around the one who met me on the Damascus Road one day. Who literally brought my life out of meaningless existence and set me on the solid foundation of his love. And I've now oriented my life and my priority around that one that by the time he gets to the end of his life church he dreams and he fantasizes about being with Jesus I just got news for you I hope that when my time comes I'm not grasping back at this 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 temporal existence of something that's fading away I hope that I look at people and say you know what I cannot wait to be with my Jesus I have such love and desire that's why to die is ultimate gain because death is the quickest thing that gives me access into the presence of almighty God and so he can look at them and say you know what my love's centered around the love of Jesus so therefore to die is gain but if it's not I gain nothing nothing I pray I've anchored myself in the one who lies beyond the time and space continuum his name is Jesus I pray my heart is anchored in him I pray that I understand that his love is more real than anything this world ever has to offer it's more real than it and the moment church dwelling place Woodstock turns into anything else but a love fest. I pray the Holy Spirit of God would come in and wreck us and cause us to repent in an instant. I pray if this ever comes anything, I'm talking 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, should the Lord tarry, if it's anything other than a love fest, we would fall to our knees and begin to repent. That's all this is. A love fest. Sharing his love. I hear the Lord saying to us today, orient your gatherings around my love. Sing songs about my love. Go to Starbucks and talk about my love. Get on the phone and talk about my love. Tweet about my love. Instagram about my love. Speak about my love. Become centered around my love. Orient your priorities around my love. Make your schedule around my love. Talk to people about my love. Demonstrate my love. Have an action oriented. Become tangible about my love. Our focus is God's love for us, each one of us. And I pray that that would be the theme of our lives, that it's about his love, that he never gives up. I trust the Holy Spirit speaking to us today. I'm so grateful church. Can I just say to you, I am so grateful that the scripture is not a collection of sanitized stories of people who are holy holy saints. It's a collection of ordinary broken people who are loved by God so much that he subjects himself to their brokenness to love them right where they are. That's all that scripture is. He loves us. He's not afraid, although he's holy, to get his hands dirty. C.S. Lewis said, if you want to get warm, you better stand by the fire. If you want joy, peace, and love, you better get around the one who holds joy, peace, and love. You better get around Jesus Christ who loves with an everlasting love. This is who our Jesus is. And the crazy thing is, when we go throughout our lives this week, 
God wants his love to be expressed through our lives in tangible ways to the world around us. You know, that's why Jesus on the cross didn't say, I am finished, did he? He said, it is finished, because he was just getting started. He just started at the cross. And now he's operating through your life and my life with his unconditional, relentless love. Because he's out for humanity. He's out to save our city. I want to read one final scripture for you in Psalm 27. I love this passage. Say, Craig, well, I want more of this love. I want more of this love. Well, how do I gain this love? How do I respond to this love? How do I give in to this love? Listen to Psalm 27, verse 4. He said, one thing I ask from the Lord, this one thing I seek. Everybody say, seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Here it is. To gaze. Everybody say gaze. Upon the beauty of the Lord. You want to know how to fall more in love with Jesus and be more in love with who he is? Listen, when people don't like each other, they glance at each other. When people like each other, they really look at each other. But when people are desperately in love with one another, they gaze at each other. Craig, how do I get more of myself and give more of myself to his love here's what you do you silence yourself you sit down you turn some worship on and you look at Jesus and you gaze at his love and you don't stop gazing you keep gazing at his cross and you gaze at his cross again and when you feel weak you gaze at his cross again and when you feel like you don't have enough love to love the people that are unlovable in your life you sit back down and you gaze at the cross again and you keep gazing before long once you gaze at something long enough the desperate love that Jesus has for you and I begins to seep into my heart and begin to seep into my soul and all of a sudden agape begins to relentlessly run after the people around me you just gaze that's why the old hymnist Isaac Watts what did he say when I glance at the wondrous cross no when I survey you see the surveyors get their little instruments out and they look and, and they and they look really close and they look from this side and when I survey the wondrous cross <laughs> woo <laughs> man what would happen in our community? What would happen in our community if we gave ourselves fully to agape, relentless kind of unconditional love, divine love? We wouldn't be in this building much longer. What if you took these next three days on this fast and at the bottom of your card you'll see point by point to pray and to agree with corporately? What if you took these three days and some of you have lost that fire and the passion? I'm not saying you don't love God, but you've lost that fire and passion that you once had. Like many of them mentioned the baptistry even this week, that you say, Lord, ignite me again. Lord, use this fast to ignite my love. Lord, let me survey the wondrous cross. I gaze upon you. Would you have Again, thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at www.dwellingplacemovement.org.